0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her book *Gulp: Adventures on the Alimentary Canal*, Mary Roach explores the much maligned but vital tube from mouth to rear that turns food into the nutrients to keep us alive. And in this hour, we're going to address such questions as why doesn't the stomach digest itself? Can wine testers really tell a $10 bottle from a $100 bottle? Why do Americans eat, on average, no more than 30 different foods on a regular basis? And Gulp is as much about human beings as it is about human bodies. And so we'll meet a disgust researcher, a saliva expert, and one of medicine's oddest couples, Alexis St. Martin, a French-Canadian trapper with a whole gut shot in his stomach, and William Beaumont, the Army surgeon who achieved fame by placing food inside St. Martin to see what happened. Now, this is a encore presentation of a program, but you can still respond, hope you will, at upraxis at gmail.com access at gmail.com, or you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. Here's our conversation from April. Mary Roach, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Let me start with uh, your very interesting and interestingly written biography. Sometimes these are dry. I guess people could expect with you that this would be interesting to read. You grew up in New Hampshire?
1: That's right, Hanover, New Hampshire.
0: By the way, I'm reading from maryroach.net. People want to uh, play along here. Uh, Graduated from Wesleyan and drove out to San Francisco. That's uh, sort of where the adventure began, I suppose. Interestingly, worked as a uh, freelance copy editor and then a halftime PR job for the San Francisco Zoo.
1: Yeah, I was uh, uh, spectacularly ill-suited to uh, publicity, public affairs, that is. Uh, People would, you know, you're supposed to do kind of party line and damage control. And I would get calls from like, there was at one point a reporter called and said, I heard that the cheetahs, one of the cheetahs was sucked dry by fleas, which wasn't true. But I went off on that this tangent and was like, well, really, how many, how many fleas do you think? Like, wow, let's fact check this. How much blood, per flea, how much blood in the cheetah? And my boss is like, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Deny the rumor and get, off the
0: phone. <laughs> uh, so I guess, you know, people care about the animals, and so these rumors would start, I suppose.
1: I, I believe this was a... Uh, yeah, this must must have been a... Uh, I don't know if this was generated by one of the zookeepers or uh, somebody, a visitor. I have no idea.
2: Right.
0: Where
1: the, where the information came from, but...
0: Uh, so it, it eventually... And, and then you're writing freelance articles, and, and eventually that led to bigger things. And you got into this... I guess you call it a, a niche, you were you, you write about, um, and uh, one uh, reviewer uh, called it um, um, science of the taboo, the macabre, the icky, the just plain weird.
1: That sounds about right.
0: Do, do You own that? Do you, do you agree with that?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've... I've uh... I've copyrighted that. It's protected. <laughs> no one else can go near it. So, uh, yeah, along with the word curious, which uh, seems to be in, I think, three of my subtitles. I didn't do that intentionally, but it seems to have become... It's my word now.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, cadavers, uh, weightlessness, um, sex, and and in, in this book, which, by the way, is out in paperback, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. What, uh, what's the Alimentary Canal?
1: The Alimentary Canal is the whole food chute from nose to tail basically that strange squishy tube that runs all the way through us kind of like a donut hole that's the alimentary canal aliment being what spanish for food
0: hmm.
1: aliment food so it's the, it's the food chute
0: yeah so uh, how do you pick your topics what uh, what made you want to write about the alimentary canal
1: i pick my topics in a, uh, well my my books they tend to happen when I have a couple nuggets of, of material that I, I wasn't able to use or really do justice to. And sometimes I think, well, what what could I build around this? And I had, when I wrote Packing for Mars, I had come across a study, a project at UC Berkeley in the nutrition department, uh, wherein this was in the 60s, uh, they, uh, they were trying to see what would be a good, a simple thing to grow on a Mars mission. This is all quite speculative. What would be a simple thing to feed the astronauts that we could grow on a spaceship? wouldn't take up a lot of space. Well, what about bacteria? They actually tested, uh, they served up on a plate this slurry of bacteria to these uh, poor, I'm guessing, undergraduate students. And that got me thinking about the science of eating and food, and how uh, there's a lot of books written on food and the joys of eating and cooking and cuisine. But you know, once we start chewing it, we don't think about it. We don't want to think about it. And uh, there are actually a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things happen uh, from the from the mouth onward. And I thought it would be fun to you know f- follow along with that food a little ways and, and um, write about you know, my write about that basically.
0: This ends up being uh, very interesting human stories. Uh, a lot of scientists, of course, that's who you would deal with, but uh, just some fascinating people. You couldn't make up these stories.
1: No, that, that, that's right. Some of them, the the the, the, uh, the beautiful Italian saliva researcher, I, that, that was, uh, I don't know what I expected from a saliva researcher, but I certainly didn't expect this well-dressed, well-clothed, beautiful, Italian woman in in boots that I really wanted uh, that she she and she had this passion for you know, spit basically she she was uh, um, a delight you know she'd get very animated when she spoke about the miraculous antimicrobial properties of saliva and the, and the way the, you know these long chains form and that's just why it's sort of mucoid but here's what it does it kind of traps bacteria it prevents it from clumping and she, at one point she slams her fist on the table it's amazing and she's talking about saliva uh, so that kind of person I, I, I love spending time with that sort of person in their world in the lab uh, so there's a lot of that in this book, hmm.
0: and there, not there's just, not just saliva. There's a fair amount of I don't know obsession, doggedness would be a mm-hmm. maybe a kinder term, which I guess makes some of these scientists successful.
1: I think there there is typically a lot a, a, a certain degree of obsession with 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 science and with a scientist. I think that's that's what where the joy comes from in science. That just Discovery and digging deeper and discovering more, realizing there's, it's more complicated than you realize, but also more interesting, and, and it, it keeps bringing you further along. I think that that's you know, and I, I go through a similar process with my books, but on a much broader scale. I'm kind of hopscotching all over, whereas scientists are digging deeper and deeper. Uh, but I, but I, I I enjoy spending yeah, I enjoy spending time in that worlds, the world of the laboratory, and it's a, you know, laboratories are a, you know, they're off they're sort of isolated, they're often, you, you know, some of them are in the basement, some of them are up on the top floor, they're, and they have this, they all have their own strange pieces of equipment, and people tend to be there at funny hours, and it's a, it's a world I love to step into mm-hmm. over and over, and uh, um, I don't, I myself, I don't think have the focus to be a scientist, but it, this way I, I get to hang around with them.
0: Yeah, I guess you would have to have a uh, focus, uh, there's some there's some things which i guess you you just couldn't have imagined um for example um president garfield's doctor, whose first name was doctor
1: <laughs> dr dr willard bliss yeah. <laughs> yeah that someone wrote me a note that and said that that is to 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 name uh, a child doctor is a, a an old mormon tradition for a certain uh it's a third born male or something there there was something about there was a bit of an explanation that somebody passed along i heard it and i just thought well here's a guy you know his parents wanted him to become a doctor uh that's going to maybe steer him in that direction and also you know he uh uh dr bliss uh, was uh, not a not a particularly great doctor he he was uh, he made some blunders if your name's doctor they can strip you of your license and you will still always be dr bliss
0: mm-hmm. at least... I,
1: I don't know if that that was part of the decision but anyway <laughs> Dr. Dr. Willard Bliss, yeah.
0: And, and as you say, not a particularly good doctor probably hastened the death of President Garfield after he was shot.
1: Yes, there was an assassination attempt, uh, and Garfield, well, one of the things Dr. Bliss became fascinated by, and this is, this is not one of the blunders, but he, um, he began feeding uh, President Garfield uh, from the other end, because Garfield wasn't able to keep things down, he was. Uh, I think that that was the case. It wasn't like It was a stricture, but anyway, he wasn't able to take food in the, in the normal direction. So he began feeding him in reverse, and he wrote. Garfield wrote an entire book called Rectal Feeding, including some recipes, which we don't need to get into. But um, but it, it is possible to. So absor- I mean, and I I found this fascinating that you you can absorb some. Um, Nutrients this way, it's not uh, it's not ideal. Like 80 or more percent of your absorption of nutrients happens in the small intestine, not way down at the end. Uh, but there are some um, some nutrients and some you, know, you can keep hydrated, and
2: uh, certain drugs
1: are administered uh, that way that and they take act action more quickly because you're bypassing the, the stomach and other organs and just going, goes directly into the bloodstream. So there are. Some, some advantages to it but uh but i you know he he uh, he got very excited about it and you know, published a book and
0: hmm. interesting it, so it is possible to take some nutrient that that way yeah
1: I, yes, yeah. That's, yeah that's right it is you know salts and sugars and some fatty acids and hydration yeah there are uh there, there definitely are some things are getting through that way it's just it's not ideal i, I think you know you could postpone someone's death but you Probably wouldn't keep them alive long term, feeding them that way. And mm. uh, there were other, as you can imagine, other disadvantages to eating mm.
0: backwards. I don't want to spend the entire hour talking about Doctor Bliss, <laughs> but it's just uh, <laughs> this is a parenthetical. Apparently, he uh, he charged the government the equivalent in today's dollars of a quarter of a million dollars for his services at the mm-hmm. uh, you know at, mm-hmm. at the assassination of Doctor of President Garfield. Um, yes, so, and
1: he was also known for uh, hiring. Uh, uh, secretaries to come in and be nurses, and and you know not washing his hands, and there were a number of things that that he was doing that were not uh, not something you would expect of a presidential
0: doctor. Mm-hmm. We're talking uh, with uh, Mary Roach, whose uh, book *Gulp: Adventures on the Alimentary Canal* is out in paperback. Uh, Mary Roach, uh, as I mentioned, some just some interesting characters uh, along with the interesting science. What if you tell us about? You have a, a chapter here. About William Beaumont and Alexis Saint Martin.
1: Yes, William Beaumont is uh, was a um, an army physician who stumbled upon. Uh, the, he was a, he was a physician out in the Michigan territories. There was nearby the army garrison. There was a, a fur trappers' general store. The American Fur Company had kind of a trading post. There was an accident. One of the fur Uh, couriers, came in and and to the store, uh, the the gun discharged accidentally, I'm not sure who fired it, but anyway, opened up a hole in St. Martin's side It didn't, uh, including the stomach. The hole didn't heal. Uh, His doctor, Dr. Beaumont, realized he could peer inside the human stomach, see these things, juices being being secreted, he could see uh, contractions going on. He decided to do a formal study, and he did this by, because at the time, the the process of human digestion wasn't very well understood. Uh, There was some, some people said it's mechanical, the stomach grinds and squishes and contracts, and and that's how food is broken down. Other people said, no, no, it's a chemical process. So he, cleverly enough, took this, um, a mesh bag, a silk bag, put different types of food, some raw, some cooked, a whole chunk of beef, a piece of bread, some cabbage that's cut up but not thinly sliced, put it in the bag, put it in the stomach, and he had sort of hired uh, St. Martin to be a chore boy, a house boy, and so St. Martin would go around the house doing his duties with a bag of stuff in his stomach and a string hanging out so that the bag could be extracted at intervals to see what was left. And the curious thing about them, about this pair, this went on for some 30 years on and off. Um, the kind of There's a kind of a mutual dependency. St. Uh, Martin knew there weren't very many stomachs like his that afforded this opportunity. Beaumont was able to make his name as a pioneering physician, disco- making discoveries, publishing things. Uh, and so Bo- uh, St. Martin would every now and then take off uh, and disappear and leave <laughs> leave Beaumont uh, without, a, without a subject. Bea- Beaumont would send out Uh, messages, uh, this was of course before email, and so sending out messages Has anybody seen St. Martin, offer him this much money, tell him he can bring his family, and and St. Martin would hold out for more money, and this went on and on, you know, over over the course of their lifetimes, they were bound by this strange stomach that uh, the two of them kind of shared.
0: Yeah, it was kind of uh, reading that, it was kind of hard to to know who's using who, and, uh, and, and to what extent, but I guess it did have benefits for both men. Uh, the doctor uh, went on to some renown, didn't he? He became known as the
1: yes. father yeah. of physiology. William, mm-hmm. William Beaumont is known as, yeah you know, the the father of physiology. He's, uh, yes, he's someone, if, if you, when you go to medical school, you, you hear that name, you know, when you, you read the chapter on physiology, there's often a mention of William Beaumont. Uh, you know, Beaumont, the discoveries that he made, though, were things that if you look back a uh, um, hundred years earlier, uh, some of the Italian anatomists and scientists had had, had done work w- with animals in a similar way, and also with themselves, eating something and then making themselves regurgitate. I mean, it was, it was a way to sort of do what Beaumont was doing. Uh, and then also had done some work with animals where they put a piece of food in a capsule, like a metal capsule, so that they could see with, with, a, with open-ended um, mesh, so that the, if there were juices, those juices could get in, um, the capsule would prevent the food from being crushed, and that way they proved, yes, in fact, this is a chemical method. So, So that big discovery Beaumont made had, in fact, been made to some extent by some earlier Physiologists, and experimenters, but nonetheless, it was you know, a lot of people. I guess weren't familiar with the, the Italians' work, and so Beaumont uh, had it really came to renown, some renown as a as a physiologist and an, an experimenter.
0: It, it underlines, for me at least, is sometimes it's it's luck, it's happenstance. These two men yes. happened to be together, and this yes. you know, unfortunately, the one there's, man got shot. hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. There's there's a little bit of uh, a question mark. In some people's minds, as to how vigorously Dr. Beaumont tried to heal that hole, and at what point it occurred to him that this could be his path to uh, experimental medical <laughs> renown. So it's, it's it's unclear. From his own diaries, he says I did everything I could to close that hole. Uh, stomach uh, wounds can be problematic getting them to heal, but there but there has been a little speculation that he might have he might have hatched this plan a little sooner. Uh, then he
0: made out. We're talking with Mary Roach, author of several books, and uh, her book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, is out in paperback. Uh, more following a brief break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Addison Brett at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, Sandwiches and boxed lunch. Information at Grombrothers.com And Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater, July 9th through August 9th in Logan, with 128 festival events, including concerts, classes, and performances of Le Misérable. The Student Prince, Oklahoma, and Vanessa. Details at utahfestival.org.
1: Imagine there's a way to hack into your brain to rewire it, to make you smarter, even happier.
0: Altering cognitive abilities, altering personality is within our reach
2: now. It's like science fiction.
0: It's mapping an unexplored universe.
1: I'm Guy Raz. The hackers are coming for your brain, the climate, even the animal kingdom on the
2: next TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Mary Roach, author of uh, several books including Gulp: Adventures on the Alimentary Canal out in paperback. Uh, Want to get into uh, talking about um, the connection between uh, smell and taste. Of course we know there there is one. Uh, I learned a few things from from reading reading the book including that how how important uh, smell is. In fact, people who lose the ability to smell uh, sometimes you know, you can't get them to eat.
1: Yes, that's that's true. I I I before I began the book, I wasn't aware of the extent to which the experience of food is is olfactory. It's when you know when you say flavor, flavor is a combination of taste, which is happening on the tongue. That's the basic sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and that other one that's kind of brothy. Uh, but th- those are the th- that's that's really the extent of what the tongue is. Uh, processing for you you, in terms of how you're experiencing what you eat and all the rest of it, some 80% of it is olfactory. It's these, uh, when you hold food in your mouth and you chew it up and you hold it and warm it in your mouth, these gases are released and they waft up into the nose and that's our experience of, you know, everything from lemon and chocolate and I mean obviously there's some bitter and some sweet involved in chocolate but, but, a, but a lot of the subtleties and nuance, uh, you know, citrus and black cherry and all those things that you read on the wine labels, that's happening in the nose uh, and it's combining with what's going on in the tongue to create this overall sensation of flavor. But uh, it, it is, a, it is um, yeah, without your, without your nose, the experience of eating is, is uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite diminished um
0: for, um yeah uh, and and so you say you know for for people who for whom everything tastes like cardboard uh, some don't even want to eat
1: yes that's right if you if you have um if, if you have difficult, well and 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 the tongue part you know as well i mean somebody there are there are people who've lost um the ability to you know there's some of, there's some damage to the tongue but yeah without the nose i have a friend who has uh, almost no sense of smell and she tends to just order the same food and she'll she'll go yeah I, you pick the wine to me it all will taste the same i can't really just sweet hmm. she she doesn't um she tends to not get excited about food it's it's sort of something she has to do to keep going it's not uh, it's not a joy in the way that it is for you and i
0: you uh you encounter something in the book uh, in your research called blast olfactometry.
1: Yes, that's a blast olfactometry. That's a, a, the way that um, when you want to study the sense of smell, you want to uh, have a controlled delivery of whatever it is the person is smelling, and so uh, you would you put a little uh, tube up to the nose and you. Blast in blast sounds a little overly vigorous. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's not dangerous, uh, but it, but it, it it delivers a controlled amount of the the gas that the, the, the odorant, as they call it.
0: Some people, I guess, have a, a very heightened sense of smell and taste. Uh, you, I understand, uh, d- did a I guess an experiment where were involved in uh, tasting olive oils
1: tried out for an olive oil flavor panel. There are professional flavor panels for everything from mutton to chicken McNuggets to wines and all olive wine and olive oil are, are, the, are the sort of the more common ones that you, you hear about people being a professional taster. Um, and I stumbled onto a, uh, a a tryout, a call for <laughs> a call for tryouts for an olive oil flavor panel, and um, most of the people there unlike me, were uh, professionals in the olive oil industry. And it was amazing to me what they were able to do with their mouths and noses, mostly noses. Um, They were able to rank, (laughs) they were given a series of olive oils and able to rank them by bitterness when I couldn't really, I wouldn't have described any of them as bitter. Um, I was given an olive oil uh, sample that I, I was perfectly fine. I was like, you know, give me a piece of bread. This is delicious. This was this was in fact a rancid sample. I had no idea. Hmm. Um but and it isn't that they are uh, gifted, you know, genetically with superior sense of smell or taste. It is that they have educated their palate. And this is true also for for wine in the wine industry. You, know, you kind of think, "Oh, come on. There's no way you can be tasting, you know, black cherry licorice Cigar smoke, whatever, whatever you know, wood overtones, how could that possibly be? But the way that that way that you um, the way that you do that, you that you can actually buy this kit with all the chemical constituents that create these individual aroma notes, and you can learn those one by one. It's like learning a vocabulary, and then when you taste, when you put a wine into your mouth and you hold it in your mouth, the, the aromas go up into the nose you're able to identify those, whereas someone like myself just goes, mm, yeah, that's nice. I can't... It's, it's kind of like listening to a symphony. Um, if you're a musician or an educated listener, you can pick out you know, the oboe and the piccolo and the, all, all of the different instruments, whereas someone else just responds to the overall sound of the music.
0: Uh, that's reassuring anyway, isn't it? You can you can learn this.
1: You can learn this, yes. You can absolutely learn it. It's not a closed club.
0: Hmm. Tell me about... Uh... Paul Wagner, wine judge. He, he plays a game with his wine marketing students.
1: He does. He's done this for some 16 years, and he's taken a bunch of wines, and he's hidden the label by putting them in a brown paper bag, which I think is a lovely touch. <laughs> so he's hidden the label. He's got a bunch of bottles of wine, and some of them are under $10 and some are over 50 And every year the highest average rating goes to one of the under ten dollar wines, and, and that's to say, it's, some of the the um, it's not to say that these are better, but that when you get to the very high end wines, they're going to appeal to some people, but they're going to seem unusual and strange to other people. Whereas uh, a less expensive wine that is geared to a wide audience, you know, there are certain things that most people like. There's a certain kind of jammy, a little bit tiny bit sweet not too tannic Yeah, you know, there's a kind of and i don't know if that is the, the attributes of the more popular wine but there's a um, that's going to on average get the higher end up with a higher average rating uh, so that and that was you know that's that's very, that's consistent they're definitely and these are students these are these are students who who you know who who know their wines they're not coming in off the street so it's, it was an interesting
0: so but but their palates aren't educated to the extent that I, I don't know. The connoisseurs would would help. Well, or?
1: they're they're responding to you know they're, they're 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 rating it on in terms of how you know rating the rating is going to be on a certain to a certain extent subjective. Uh, they're going to you know they, it's it's separate from saying uh, these are the descriptors, these are the uh, flavors that the, the, the aromas that I'm getting. It was just rate this wine. You know, and and so there was an element of subjectivity, and and uh, the, the the expensive ones weren't everybody's cup of tea, even amidst a a group that had a, a quite educated palate.
0: Hmm. Uh So there there is an element of taste in in the other sense
1: here. Yeah, that's right. There's another study I like that was done in Bordeaux, uh, wherein they gave people, and again these were wine these were wine people. They gave them a red wine, and they had them describe it using the usual wine descriptors that people use, and they wrote this list of wine descriptors, and a, and, and then they, they gave them another red wine that was actually a white wine that had been dyed red, and they were c- careful to make sure that the dye didn't influence the taste, the flavor in any way, and they had them, okay, describe this quote-unquote red wine, and now they listed white wine descriptors, and that doesn't mean that they're they're idiots, or they're, you know, they're people that think that they can understand wine, and they don't. What that means, that, that demonstrates, is that we are very visual creatures, and the visual cues trump what's going on in the mouth. Hmm. And they, they looked at it, and they were set up to expect white wine. Their visual system was telling them, sorry, red wine. Uh, it was telling them, this is red, and in fact, it was white. But, they, uh, but the descriptors were all red wine. I hope I didn't say that backwards.
0: No, I, th- really. I think we've got that, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> Mary Roach is our guest in Access Utah today, if you're just joining us. Uh, she's author of uh, several uh, best-selling books. The latest, uh, or uh, just on paperback, is Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, um, looking at the how we digest our food, so from the mouth to the other end. And the other end produces some very interesting science with a high ick factor. We'll get into that, including talking about fecal transplants, which I never knew happened or were possible before I read the book. So thank you very much, Mary Roach. Um, and uh, but but very interesting here. And again, the this, the scientists behind this are you know just very interesting as well. This was very interesting to me, uh, Mary. Uh, According to research for the Washington Center for Obesity uh, Research, Americans apparently aren't very adventurous. Uh, we eat, on average, no more than thirty different foods on a regular basis. Guess we just uh, choose the thirty foods we like best and rotate among those.
1: That's 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 what they found. And uh, I initially I thought, well, how can that be? You know, how can that possibly? But but then when I, I, I could I think of myself as an adventurous eater. I like to try new foods. But when I sat down and thought about what do I eat day to day, you know, I eat the same granola for breakfast with blueberries. I I go to three or four different places and pick up the same thing for lunch. You know, the, in terms of the, the recipes, you know, you go back to the same recipes that you know and you that don't take too long. So there really weren't that many unless I was going out to eat somewhere new and exciting, which I don't do all that often. Um, it is, uh, yeah, we, we tend to, uh, we're a little bit, as they say, neophobic, uh, and that is, uh, that, is the, that is the normal state for us, and that's something, um, even as, even as babies. And one of the um, you know, ch- children tend to push away something new. They don't want to try something new. Uh, one of the ways I found this was fascinating that, that a new mother could combat this a bit was to introduce the food. In the womb or while breastfeeding, because in in both cases, uh, if the woman say is eating garlic or uh, Brussels sprouts, something with a lot of uh, aromatic, uh, like either sulfur compounds, and things things that that are um, a strong flavor, a strong smell, uh that, that those are detectable in the amniotic fluid and the breast milk. They actually had a a flavor panel come and um, sniff breast milk, not taste it, but sniff the breast milk of women who had eaten garlic capsules, and they were able, you know, and then there were control samples, they were able to pick out, uh, the, you know, the, smell the breast milk and say, oh, yeah, this is the one with the garlic. So the child was uh, was taking in that flavor and getting used to it, and therefore when the uh, the child is exposed to it, after birth, it's it's not going to be a new flavor. It's going to be a, a familiar item. So that that's a way maybe to combat this neophobia that we all uh, tend
0: to have. Yeah, and I think we've all been around kids who you know don't want to try uh, something. On the other hand, you you talk about um, Paul Rosen, who's apparently a disgust researcher. What's that? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Well, he studies the psychology of disgust. It's a it's an emotion with it complete with its own involuntary facial reaction when you eat something or smell something disgusting, the nose r- r- kind of wrinkles up, the mouth opens to eject the offending food. So there is, it's called the disgust face. Hmm. And that's something that, uh, we all seem to display when we're disgusted. But he, yes, he, he, um, he talked about how children, um, the, the, the cultural likes and dislikes that we all are subject to, um, Those don't, those kick in at a certain point with children. And before that point, you can get little kids to, to, little kids, like I think it was up to, I'm forgetting the span of months, but but really young kids would pick up and put in their mouth almost anything. And he tried this classic experiment where he presented these little kids with a sterilized grasshopper, a piece of hair, I think also sterilized, Ketchup on a cracker, fish eggs, dried fish—oh, things that uh, are uh, you know challenging foods for anyone—and the kids tended to. to I think like oh, oh, there was one that was a um, it was a ersatz dog do made from. Um, it was uh, it was scented with blue cheese, and it was some kind of a. I, I'm not sure what the substrate was, um, but I, I I think it was. Fifty-five percent of the kids would put that, and it was presented as "here's this is dog dew, and the kids put it in their mouth. So, so up to a point, kids are very uh, accepting of strange foods, and and then, and then that kind of fades away. Hmm.
0: So, what's going on here? Do you think we 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 don't like to try new things? I guess we're is that protecting us from potentially dangerous foods, or what? What's going on? Do you?
1: think? Well, they're, they're, they're we culture by culture, and you know, we we tend to. Um, there's a wonderful line, I think it was one of the anthropologists who in World War II were trying to change America's eating habits to get them to embrace organ meats, because that's what was left over. The troops wanted the good cuts, and, and they're trying to get Americans to eat organ meats. And so there was a bunch of studies done on, American, on, on eating habits and how do you change a culture's eating habits. And one of the one of the anthropologists said, people don't Eat what like people don't eat what they like. They like what they eat. In other words, if you give it to somebody over and over, they're gonna like it. They did. A, there was a study where they gave at a women's college. They evaporated milk. They asked these women how give them a survey. Do you like you know rate these foods? said they liked evaporated milk. They served it in the the cafeteria for a couple of weeks. They gave that survey of likes and dislikes again. Now, after they've been drinking the evaporated milk for a couple of weeks, now 51% said, yeah, I like evaporated milk. Mm. So if you can just get the old try it, you'll like it. Uh, It seems to be be effective. Uh, But the most effective way to change a culture's eating is to have someone high status and in public view. Embrace something or eat it. Like with organ meats, what we've been seeing, you know, there's now restaurants, high high-end restaurants, where they're serving bone marrow and sweetbreads, and that's become hip and trendy. And so now it's you know eating organ meats, which would originally in this country was viewed as what the lower classes ate because they couldn't afford the good cuts. Now that's a high status item. So that's really uh, the, the most effective way. It seems to get a culture to change what uh, it, it feels is good to eat.
0: And apparently it takes uh, you're you, you right uh, 5 to 10 years for new ethnic cuisine or foreign food to gain acceptance. I guess that that has to do with what yes. we've been talking about. And there's a there's a typical path, I guess, by which uh, ethnic food gains acceptance.
1: Yeah, the the, um, the person that I spoke to was saying that it it yeah, it typically starts out as an appetizer on menus in restaurants. So there's it's not a big risk to order an appetizer of bone marrow but you're not necessarily well you wouldn't that might not be a main course anyway but you know, organ meats that's something that you you want to tiptoe into and so it starts as an appetizer and then it might move to an entree in a restaurant and then when it's deemed to be pretty low risk as a marketing venture then you would you would start to see companies uh creating dishes that you could uh, you know prepare whether it's frozen or something to, that you prepare at home, you would start to see that. But yeah, five five to ten years for that progression, typically. So it's a it's a slow embracing of things that are new. I mean, I remember when I was a child uh, in New Hampshire, no, there were no there was no no ethnic cuisine whatsoever. Now you go back to my hometown, there's uh, you can get the vietnamese soup you can there's a couple of mexican restaurants there's thai there's really everything in this small town in new hampshire Uh, and uh, that's that's more than 10 i'm sad to say more than 10 years (laughs) back but that is you know it it, it has been this gradual evolution
0: you're listening to access utah i'm tom williams and on the program today we are talking with mary roach about her book gulp adventures on the alimentary canal more following
2: this break Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Dining Services, creating an excellent college experience, providing opportunities for the campus community to gather together. And Colligan Water of Catch Valley, family owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing Colligan bottled water, salto delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey, Colligan Man service from the Man in Blue. Online at logand.colliganman.com BBC BBC
0: Hello, I'm Ros Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the
2: murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with News Hour.
0: The BBC is your gateway to the world. And this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. We're talking with Mary Roach, author of Gulp, Adventures on the Elementary Canal, out in paperback. I want to check some of these uh, interesting facts. Uh, So we've heard, you know, we have a traditional uh, tradition or or cultural thing, uh, kiss a boo-boo, dogs lick their wounds. Apparently there's science behind that.
1: Yes, the, uh saliva. Saliva is is a fairly miraculous substance. It's got some antibacterial properties, and also some nerve and skin growth elements. Some things that stimulate healing. Uh, this has been demonstrated in, in rather uh, bizarre uh, ways. For example, there was a study where there, I, I believe it was rodents, and they disconnected the, um, the salivary gland so that when the the animal licked a wound. There wasn't any saliva being deposited, so they had, to, uh, and then they had a control where the animal was licking the wound, as it does normally. So you have these uh, uh, two creatures, and the the ones without the saliva, the wound healed more slowly uh, when the when the salivary system was was disconnected. Uh, so there was a pretty effective demonstration of the the healing properties of saliva, which is very it's counterintuitive because the mouth, yeah, you know, there are a lot of germs in the mouth, and uh, the, 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 obviously the saliva has uh, has ways of uh, mitigating that, and also antiviral elements, saliva. The other thing saliva does is uh, it uh, dilutes acid in food. If you're drinking wine or, or citrus juice, things that are on the acid range of the pH scale, that will dissolve your tooth enamel quite effectively. So saliva, and you can demonstrate this by taking a sip of wine, and if you're paying attention, you will feel this gush of saliva, uh, stimulated saliva coming in to um, dilute that acid, so uh, and protect the teeth. So there's all kinds of things that uh, saliva is doing on our behalf, and yet we find it revolting.
0: Yeah, and, and when the dog licks my face, I guess that's I should let him do it.
1: Yes, you should let him do it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Particularly if you've got a if you've got a you know shaving cut on your
0: face. Yes, yes. If I, okay, I'll 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 try it. <laughs>
1: I'm assuming there's some cross-species possibilities there. I I haven't tried it, but, you know, by all means, be the first.
0: Um, Here's an interesting question. I hadn't even thought of this question, but once I read it, I wanted to know the answer. Why doesn't the stomach digest itself?
1: The stomach has a number of uh, interesting protective mechanisms. Uh, There is something called the mucus layer, and that that is protecting us from, protecting... The stomach from its own juices, the stomach lining also regenerates. Uh, I think every, uh, uh, what I heard was every three days you have uh, a new stomach lining. So there's a number of things going on, uh, protective mechanisms. The stomach also is very good at protecting itself from rupture. It is very, very difficult to rupture the human stomach. Uh, you can overeat to a tremendous extent. Uh, there are stretch receptors that keep tabs on how big the stomach is getting and how close to the rupture point. And before it hits the rupture point, it will reflexively empty itself. You will regurgitate, and that's a that's a safety mechanism hmm. that we all have, including competitive eaters who will. And this is gross. Uh, swallow it. Just swallow it back down. That's what they told me.
0: Wow. Yeah. I. I yeah. That's right. I'd forgotten about competitive eaters.
1: Yeah, so you, that's, you know, I said, "How do you get around this reflex? This, this, uh, you know, the regurgitation reflex when the stomach is that full." And he said, "Oh, no, we don't. We just the rules say that the food has uh, the food can't come out, but it can come up." Am I like, oh, okay? It's. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't think I'd ever join that. Uh, you call it profession or avocation, but uh, there are people that do that. Space um, shoot spacesuits. spacesuits you did a whole other book on, on you know, space. Space suits yes. have activated charcoal filters. Why?
1: Because, well, various reasons, but if, uh, if you were to, if you're wearing a pressure suit, that's a, it's a, like a, a human body-shaped room that you're in, and so it's uh, airtight, so this air in there is recirculating, and if you introduce intestinal gas, shall we say, into the mix that will recirculate and go past your nose over and over again. So the charcoal, the activated charcoal, is absorbing those nasty uh, organic smelly components so that you don't have to keep re-experiencing your own flatus over and over and and, um, taking the fun out of your spacewalk.
0: And their whole department, well, a whole department, I don't know, at, at NASA has to think about these sorts of things.
1: Yes, well, and the the not only the aroma of of intestinal gas, but the 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 flammability of it. I, I mean, hydrogen, which is the, the, a large component in human flatus. I enjoy saying that word. Slightest uh, 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 hydrogen, you know, in concentrations 10 uh, percent or so, it's 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 uh, combustible. So you have these astronauts in in this sealed capsule. Not this, not so much the suit, but the sealed capsule. And, and uh, if they were producing enough gas, there was a concern that um, it might reach concentrations where there'd be a danger of an explosion. So there was NASA did for a while keep on contract Michael Levitt, who was a an expert in gastrointestinal. Well, in, in Flatus, this particular expertise was in intestinal gas.
0: So, uh, by the <laughs> way, assured
1: I... them that that they'd be safe; that it wasn't yeah. going to be of a dangerous concentration.
0: By the way, I learned that term from your book. That's it, it. It makes it sound a little more elegant, Flatus. Flatus, um, yes. And uh, one of the experts you talked to, and there are experts that study this. Um, you, you know the the been people who have tried to make Flatus not smell as bad. This particular expert said, uh, just get a dog. Yeah,
1: that's right. Get a dog to blame it on. I know. Yeah. Yeah, there are strategies. There is something. There's an internal deodorant. It's a substance that, that absorbs the odor, and you could take these... Pills, There uh, are pads to put in underwear. There are things you can do, but I do like uh, I do like that advice to get oh, a dog.
0: Yeah. As we reach the end of the program, we're reaching the end of the elementary canal. Um, I was grossed out, but also fascinated by this this idea of fecal transplant. Why Why would you do that?
1: A fecal transplant is a very effective cure for a chronic and dangerous. Uh, a, infection in the large intestine called C. difficile is the bacteria. And uh, it's very difficult to get rid of this bacteria with, can be difficult with it, with antibiotics. And uh, so what you're doing basically is taking a healthy person's microbiome, that is to say their poop. Um, And uh, it's a very, uh, when I was there at Dr. Kort's lab in, in Minneapolis, it's a very, it's a very simple procedure. There's a, a guy who comes in and with a sample uh, donor, that is, hands it off to someone who has an oster blender and puts some distilled water in, makes this uh, material, and then it's put into the sick person uh, through the rear with a colon, colonoscope, the same instrument that is used to do a colonoscopy. You have a like, like plunger option, you can attachment you can put on, and it is a, a very Inexpensive and effective uh, cure for this particular condition, so it's it's fairly miraculous, uh, though icky. But the mm-hmm. thing is, uh, if you are someone with a chronic C. diff infection, you are already icked out, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it is it it's it's, it's welcomed. Uh, and it's uh, in the time that I began, from the time I began working on the book till now, uh, the acceptance level has has uh, gone up to the point where. I think in most major cities there, there's a place to go and have this done. Um, it was interesting. It was sort of held up by the fact that the um, the system for, for coding and billing in hospitals didn't really – like how do you code a fecal transplant and how much do you charge for it? Uh, so, they, you know, because normally a pharmaceutical company will – Instigate the approval process, and the whole thing will sort of move through the, the standard channels. But here, there was no pharmaceutical company or device maker. It's just a guy with a bag saying, "Here you go." Hmm. Uh, so, um, anyway, that's the that is the fecal transplant.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, here again, the the scientist or the doctor or the pe- people behind what we're talking about are as fascinating as the science. Um, yes. it, Dr. Kortz, I guess, uh, yes. developed this, and I, I, it has a high ick factor, but I, I guess there's a point where you have the idea, and then you say, well, I'm, I'm going to try this.
1: Yeah, yeah, the first one was done decades ago, uh, and I spoke to uh, the, a doctor, I think it was Eisner, I may be misremembering that, but he said that back then, when you had you had an idea, and you tried it. Now there's, of course, many levels. There's the IRB review, and there's there's lots of uh, you know trials and 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 procedures that you follow. Uh, it's not quite so cavalier. So uh, it's it's been a long time. Uh, it, it, it's been out there, but not really part of the the medical system. But that is uh, with with a couple. There a couple of large studies that demonstrated how effective it is in curing C diff infection. So it's now been. Accepted as, uh, and there also you can go in by the mouth. Uh, you can do it that way as well. You can go down with an endoscope through the stomach and deliver it from the other direction. I, th- I think it's uh, uh, cheaper to do it that way. I've been told. But any- anyway, when I saw it, they were delivering it
0: through the back door. We're uh, reaching the end of our time. I wanted to, before we close, I wanted to have you tell me about um, Fletcherism. This is this was in vogue. Uh, we had several famous adherents.
1: Yes, Fletcherism was a fad for very extreme chewing, and it was put forth by Horace Fletcher, who was not an M.D. or a man of medicine, but he had a lot of friends in high places, and he, he was an efficiency buff. He coined this phrase nutritional economics, and the idea was that if you chewed the food for twice as long, you would get twice as many nutrients. And calories. And he then put this forth as something governments should, they should teach poor people to chew more thoroughly, and then they could feed them less at the soup kitchens, and they could save a lot of money that way. Um, it isn't, I mean, it's a, it, it makes a certain amount of intuitive sense in, until you know uh, that the stomach does a really good job of turning whatever you put in there, most things anyway, uh, into kind, which is a liquidy slurry that's uh, Spurted it out into the small intestine, so it's almost an insult to the powers of the stomach to think that you are, you need to liquidize food in the mouth. Certainly you can you know save the stomach some trouble by, by chewing it thoroughly, but it isn't necessary. and um, some of the uh, he once he, he said he cited one statistic uh, a shallot, a bite of shallot, uh, seven hundred and twenty two chews. Uh, if you do the math, that's a that's a meal time that's stretching on for a number of hours. You would be peckish again before the meal ended. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, not it. Uh, it didn't last that. Long. Franz Kafka was a, a fletcherizer. That I can't wrap my mind around. I have an yeah. image of Kafka with his, you know, the cheekbones and that intense stare, looking sort of still into the in the camera. I, I can't imagine him sitting at a table. But there was a line in one historian's account about. Uh, his father holding up the newspaper at breakfast, so as not to have to watch Franz endlessly grimly toiling away at his breakfast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is a picture. I've got a, I've got that picture in my mind now too. Yeah. Uh, so when you come to the end of uh, you know one of these journeys, does it how does it stay with you? For example, with gulp, Do you uh, think differently about how you're eating or what you're eating or what's happening. I do.
1: I do eat diff- a little bit differently. I take advantage of my internal nostrils, which is the that opening. You have two sets of nostrils, this I didn't know. Uh, in the back of the mouth, there's an opening up into the um, the nose. And that, uh, when you exhale, when you have food or wine in your mouth and you are exhaling, you are actually re-experiencing those uh, flavor aromas. And so I try to do that, and I, I, I have this... I, Appreciate. I get a lot more uh, flavor from the food that way. Uh, it's, it's, so I, I, I've, I have changed a little bit the way I um, eat, drink wine and eat food because I have you know, I, uh, a new appreciation, I guess, for my internal nostrils and for my nose
0: yeah.
1: in general. <laughs> uh,
0: finally, uh, so stiff on cadavers, uh, spook, uh, bonk on sex, packing for Mars, uh, gulp the elementary canal, what's, what's next?
1: Oh, well, there is a, there is another book in the works. I'm, I'm keeping it under my hat for now, but uh, it will it, it it is it will relate to the human body in in some unusual way. So, um it's it's uh I'm just getting rolling on. Well, that's not true. I've been about a a half a year into it.
0: Well, we'll uh, we'll look for that. And in the meantime, Gulp is out in paperback. Very much a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. I really,
0: really appreciate it. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. That's uh, my conversation with Mary Roach from April. Hope you enjoyed that again. And, of course, you can find out much more at our website, upr.org. Here's a word about tomorrow's show. Hope you'll tune in tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. If scientists agree it's not nature versus nurture, but rather the interaction of nature and nurture, why does a debate still exist? And uh, there is a debate still raging. Well, James Tabry, historian and philosopher at University of Utah, is out with a new book, Beyond Versus, The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature and Nurture. He says this disagreement continues because scientists can't agree because they're not just arguing about data and results. Rather, they're engaged in a fundamentally philosophical debate about what the interaction of nature and nurture actually means. We'll talk with James Tabry tomorrow on the program. Coming up, top of the hour, hope you'll join Brian Earle for The Zesty Garden. We'll have in studio Diane Alston, USU's extension entomologist. She'll handle all of your pest questions. That's coming up in the next hour. And of course, much more information always at UPR.org. UPR.org. For producers Christian Rodriguez and Elizabeth Gee, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.